Here at the Sociology of Everything podcast, we acknowledge the people of Ghana Yarta, whose land this episode was mainly produced on, and whose past and present elders we pay our respects to. Hi, I'm Eric Sue. And I'm Louis Everest. And we're Lou and the Sue, and this is Sociology of Everything podcast. And this episode is brought to you by UniSA, the university that kind of sometimes sponsors the Tour Down Under. <laughs> I thought we sponsored it every year. Yeah, they, I, listen, this might be a, a year that they haven't done it, which is oh, why yeah. they said maybe. Okay, yeah. Well, so far, I'm pretty sure we have. And I'm quite proud of that, to be honest. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, I'm a cyclist, and it's such a good event, and so... Yeah, that was a, whoever decided that, good move. Yeah. One year when I rode one of the tour challenges, yeah. where you can do a stage of the Tour Down Under, I remember like this person, I'm not sure why I'm telling you this, <laughs> was riding like a mountain bike and passed me up a hill. Yeah. It was like so <laughs> upsetting to see this person in a mountain bike. Yeah. Just like race past me. I've had similar experiences. Although the last time I rode it, I was quite out of shape and my wife was quite in shape and she was riding it too. And she left me at the last feeding station. I had to stop because I was cramping. I was cramping in both legs. I hadn't ridden more than like yeah. 10Ks in ages and it's like 100K that challenge. It is sometimes very funny, isn't yeah. it? Oh. To like ride by someone who's cramping because you <laughs> like you see their foot or their leg go in weird yeah. directions and they go, ah. Every time I stood up out of the saddle, like my car's would cramp and uh, Sarah waited with me for a bit and then she's like nah you're just too slow and she just took <laughs> off and left me no, no idea I, I could have I could have you know fallen off my bike anyway in this episode we're going to look at the very important topic of disability mm. and I should say at the outset that both of us don't actually identify as being disabled so do take what we say in this episode with a grain of salt. Although you should probably just take what we say in general with a grain of salt, right? <laughs> it's it's a, a, a big heap full of salt, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a safe disposition to have <laughs> towards this. But with this subject and with many subjects, we're discussing the theories and structures that yeah. have developed around yeah. something. Right. This is the beginning of a conversation, not the end of one. Yeah. And it's always important to note when we don't have lived experience of yeah. this. Yes. But it is a very important topic, which is why we've decided to do an episode about it. And in particular, we're going to look at one of the very influential ways, the very important ways disability has been theorized, not just in sociology, not just in the social sciences, but in the wider world more generally. And that is the social model of disability. That's what we're going to look at in this episode. And we're going to explore what the social model of disability brings to our attention by doing a reading of a text by the noted UK sociologist Tom Shakespeare, in particular his chapter in the Disability Studies Reader. And it just kind of lays out what the social model of disability is, what it does, and it also identifies some of its shortcomings. Mm -hmm. So let's just get stuck into unpacking what the social model of disability is. It's a particular way of conceptualizing, of understanding what is or isn't a disability. And I should mention that the social model of disability that Shakespeare is referring to in this particular piece is tied to a particular place and to a particular history. Hmm. So when people talk about the social model of disability, it is possible for them to mean different things. However, the social model of disability 
that Shakespeare is interested in in his chapter is the one that first arose in the UK in the 1970s. Shakespeare ties this social model to the intellectual and political arguments of the union of physically impaired against segregation. And this network of activists and academics was very much informed by the work of people like Vic Finkelstein, mm-hmm. Mike Oliver, and others. And it produced revolutionary and influential ways of conceptualizing disability. What Shakespeare makes crystal clear in his chapter is how the social model of disability upends traditional and commonplace ways of understanding disability. Mm. It can be distinguished from the medical model of disability, which frames disability in physical terms. And arguably the most unique characteristic of the social model of disability is that it theorizes, it conceptualizes disability as a social phenomenon. Mm. It believes it is socially constructed through and through. Now, in order to understand, in order to get our heads around how disability is socially constructed, it's useful to consider the distinction that's drawn in the social model of disability between disability and impairment. What is that distinction? Why is that significant, Louis? Well, the distinction that's made is, uh, like you said, between impairment and disability. Impairment being the physical characteristic, whatever it is. So we could think of maybe someone whose vision is impaired in some way or hearing is impaired in some way. So that's kind of a physical impairment. But the interesting thing about the social model of disability is it says that an impairment doesn't necessarily amount to a disability. What Make something a disability is if a person who has a certain characteristic doesn't have the same opportunities as everyone else in society. So if someone's impairment doesn't stop them from accessing the same resources, doing the same activities, then they don't inherently have a disability. So we could kind of think of an example here as say someone who uses a wheelchair goes to a public yeah. space, so say a library. Let's just say someone has an impairment yeah. where they have limited use yep. of one of their legs. Yep. And so that person goes to a public space like a library. As they're going towards the library, they don't necessarily have a disability. When they get to the library, if there are stairs and no ramp, there's no way for them to access the library, then at that moment they do have a disability. I can go and walk up those stairs and go to the library and that other person can't. But if there is a ramp, if there is a way for that person to access the library, then they don't have a disability. They have the same opportunities as everyone else. Yeah, and they presumably then aren't disabled. Exactly. And then this is reflected in how the term disability is even applied. Mm. According to Shakespeare, the social model of disability emphasizes that people are disabled, whereas the medical model just speaks of people as having disabilities. Mm. And what's the distinction? When we use the medical model, when we think of people having disabilities, this kind of puts the onus on them. Yeah. It's like you're born with this. This is just the lot in life you were stuck with. Mm -hmm. Whereas the social model of disability says, hey, society is doing this thing to you. Yeah. It's It's making you disabled. Yeah. It's the social structures that surround people that do the disabling. 
Hmm. It's the poor urban design. It's the laws that don't give everyone an equal opportunity to do something. It's those things yeah. that are doing the disabling. It's the privileging of certain body types. Yes. And then Shakespeare talks about the strengths of the social model. And you can probably already guess what some of them are. First of all, it's remarkably effective at initiating and sparking political change. Yeah. Because it tells us where the focus of our energies should be. Mm -hmm. Every time we see someone who doesn't have the same opportunities as someone else, instantly we can start to look at the social structures that surround them and think, how can we change this? How mm. can we create equality here by improving the way social structures are yeah. designed? One approach to disability could just be rehabilitation. That's the medical model, yes. right? Yeah. Someone has a disability – oh, well, let's fix that disability so then they can, quote, unquote, live a normal life. Mm -hmm. But the social model of disability radically disagrees with that. Mm -hmm. It says, no, 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 no. This is not just something to be fixed. Mm -hmm. The fixing isn't the person with the disability. The fixing is with the society. Mm. The fixing is in the built environments we live in. Mm. The fixing is in the differential access people have to certain types of living. Mm. I often ponder this when I travel, Eric, because as I go to different places, you notice that there are some uh, countries and some cities that do a much better job at creating built environments or creating systems that work for people who have impairments. And then there are other places where you can see very little thought has been put into this. Mm. And the social model of disability could really be a useful framework to think about these different environments and how some environments create less disability than others. And so, in a sense, one of the strengths of the social model then is that it's a very powerful tool. Mm. It's an instrumental tool that can affect real social change. Another one of its strengths is that it can produce psychological changes in people who have impairments. Because mm. if you didn't have this way of thinking about disability, you would just think the fault lies with you. It's like, oh, it's my individual lot in life that's caused me to experience all of these hardships, mm. all of these challenges. It's my fault. And I think in some ways I'm quite drawn to that part of this theory because there's something really classic sociological about it. It yeah. sort of reminds me of C. Wright Mills' sociological imagination. You know, things aren't in an individual person's problem. They're a social problem. Yeah. It really draws attention to social structure. <laughs> 100%. And I think it's very powerful in that way because it does get us to think of disability in a very unique way, a very different way from how it's usually thought of. But Shakespeare is interested in not just discussing the strengths of the social model. He also wants to tease out what some of its weaknesses are, what some of its limitations are. The first one has something to do with how the social model understands impairments. Yeah. I think one thing that you can fall into the trap of or one thing that Shakespeare says you can fall into the trap of is seeing impairments as not being uh, super consequential for, mm. uh, for people's disabilities and how they live their lives. Because if all disabilities are created by society and by social structures, then it kind of makes you blind to the effects that someone's impairments can have on their lives. 
um, Shakespeare says in this article that people with impairments are disabled by society as well as their bodies. There are instances when physical impairment, no matter how a society is structured, can be disabling. And that needs to be acknowledged because that's important. Yeah. If you just simply equate social disadvantage with disability, this might actually overlook the important aspects of impairment, the consequential aspects of impairment. And indeed, some scholars, some theorists of the social model have tried to account for this. So Carol Thomas is notable mm. for her attempt to do this by introducing the idea of impairment effects. She does think that as long as we just ring fence disability as mm. having a oppressive element, this then allows us to also recognize at the same time that impairment can also have an effect on people's lives as well. But Shakespeare makes a really astute observation that there might be something slightly problematic about simply equating disability with oppression. Mm. And this links to a different point that he makes, which is that maybe the social model assumes what it needs to prove. Namely, that disabled people are oppressed. And he draws a link between disability and sex and gender. Mm. We can see clearly how gender can be involved in the production of various social inequalities, yes. various social differences. But these don't always amount to oppression. No. And in fact, in some respects, uh, as we break down the kind of strict rules about how people can perform and inhabit their gender, it becomes more celebrated. <laughs> mm. um, and one thing that Shakespeare says in this is the social model of disability just has no way of understanding disability outside of that frame of oppression. Mm. Disability is always oppressive in some way, shape or form. And this actually leads us to a segment we like to call Say What? <laughs> Where we look at a quote in need of further explanation. Shakespeare writes, The analogy with feminist debates about sex and gender highlights another problem, the crude distinction between impairment and disability. Any researcher who does qualitative research with disabled people immediately discovers that in everyday life, it is very hard to distinguish clearly between the impact of impairment and the impact of social barriers. Yeah, it's such an important point that's being made there because it's essentially saying that the experience of living with impairment and disability is so interconnected. Shakespeare talks about feelings of depression, for instance. How do you decipher whether that's occurring because of the physical impairment someone might be suffering or their engagement with the built environment and the social structures around them? And the two feed back into one another hmm. as well. Engagement with social structures could exacerbate someone's physical impairment yes. as well. So they're just so connected that it's impossible to draw such a clear-cut line between the two. Yeah, and Shakespeare actually points to another discussion that that's been going on in sociology, namely how sociologists have come to theorize the distinction between sex and gender. Mm. You might think of gender as being based in the social, whereas sex is based in the biological. Mm. But a lot of theoretical work in recent years has questioned that distinction. Yeah. And it's the same with disability and impairment. Mm. So maybe our sex is also socially produced, and so is impairment. Hmm. Shakespeare also in this piece points out that there are utopic elements about the social model of disability which we need to bear in mind, which we need to consider. Hmm. 
there's a sense in which if you take the social model to its logical conclusions, this might mean then you could one day live in a world where there are no social barriers. Yeah, that's right. Because if you position all disability as part of social structures and social structures can inherently be changed and reformed, then you should be able to completely remove all disability. But the problem is, Shakespeare points out, that you can't do that. And if you think you can do that, then what you end up doing is ignoring the fact that there are still people who live with disabilities Hmm. and you don't properly uh, help those people live their best lives. And also we need to consider how there's a range of different physical abilities, Mm. a range of different impairments people experience. That's right. And the diversity of these impairments – means that there are different sets of challenges and yeah. that the and this has been a criticism of the social model that it maybe doesn't actually take into account some of those differences mm. at least sufficiently enough. Yeah. And then lastly there's a fascinating discussion that Shakespeare provides about how the social model of disability has a kind of a strange relationship with identity politics. Mm. You might think of movements in recent years for people to celebrate their race and their, or their ethnicity or their gender. Mm. But if you closely follow the social model of disability, you can't really have something like disability pride. No, because as he said earlier on, the social model frames disability as inherently oppression. Yeah. So you can't really have oppression pride. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can, but it's not a form of pride we encourage in this podcast. That's right. That's right. Um, so yeah, that, that's quite a big problem. That'd be weird, wouldn't it be, Louis? If like <laughs> we sold stickers, right? Oppression pride. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, <laughs> brought to you by Union. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, <laughs> it's been nice working with you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, so we definitely don't encourage that. But this leads us then to kind of sum up what Shakespeare is really trying to argue here in this chapter. I think one of the things I'm left with is. On the one hand, Shakespeare does see the value of the social model of disability. Mm. It is effective at creating political change. And indeed, let's not undersell what it's been able to do. Absolutely. He acknowledges it's been a really important lens that have allowed people to identify systems that have created disability or have created bad conditions for people to live in. And indeed, disability advocacy groups now embrace, well, many of them embrace the social model of disability. Mm. And this has led to significant social changes, Mm. positive social changes. Mm. But at the same time, he does think that it just can't be it. We we also need to have something else. We need to move beyond this model. Mm. There needs to be other ways of conceptualizing disability if we are to attend to the complexities of this very important issue. Yeah. Louis, what's that sound? (laughs) Is that the sound of a segment we like to call, Wouldn't You Know Smart People Know Stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Where we have a chat with someone who knows a lot more about the topics we talk about. So welcome Caroline Allison. Caroline is an associate professor at the University of South Australia, where she's the Crossing the Horizon Professor of Aging and Disability and a developmental educator and so much more. So welcome to the podcast, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to (laughs) any excuse to uh, have a ripping debate about uh, the social model of disability is welcome. (laughs) So 
You've taught disability. Disability is something that's occupied your attention for many, many years now. What we want to know is what did we get wrong? What could we have expanded upon in our discussion of the social model of disability? We didn't get very much wrong, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to tell my students all to listen to your podcast, don't bother coming to class. No, look, you are absolutely spot on. I mean, Tom Shakespeare is really one of the seminal writers. And in the 19, late 1980s, when the social model became mm. a thing in Australia, I was working as a support worker in an institution here. Mm. And so the social model was really, I, I came in at the time of change when people working, providing support were called home assistants, mm. and they were suddenly called support workers. So it was really at that. Mm-hmm. So I worked a couple of months with my foot in either camp. But I think what you absolutely got right was that impairment is something that people have to varying degrees, but Mm. whether or not that impairment disables someone Mm. is really about the environment in which they're in. So you could also, you could have someone with a particular impairment living in the jungles of the Amazon and nobody notices or it's irrelevant to them, but someone with that same change to their physical characteristic in New York could have Mm. a completely different experience. And that was what made the social model so absolutely different, that the medical model was really about fixing people. And a woman called Judith Snow Mm. is an amazing, I think she's Canadian, wrote about the burnout in the workforce and we're trying to fix people who are either one, not fixable, or if you listen to someone like Stella Young and her TED Talk, and Stella has sadly passed, where she talked about, you know, I'm quite happy with my impairment, thank you very much. If there was some way tomorrow Mm. of getting rid of it, well, you can keep your cure because I actually don't want to be fixed. I don't need to be. Mm. So I think from that perspective, you absolutely got it right. I think the lack of nuance in the social model is the is the yeah. issue because of that and the lack of acknowledgement that I'm going to disagree with you. There is such a thing as disability pride and the people that are into disability pride mm. are going to listen to this podcast and go, oh. um, <laughs> and it actually started with the deaf community that for a very long time had their own language and, and, and Australian sign language or American sign language mm-hmm. has its own grammar, its own syntax. It's not just a matter of moving your fingers and creating words. And for a very long time, there was the oral, oral debate, which still goes on. Mm. Should children have cochlear implants? And there are some elements Mm. of the deaf community which are very against it and say it should be a choice. A bit like some of the um, discussions that go on about um, intersex, and I know earlier in this podcast you've talked about sex and gender, Mm -hmm. that people should be allowed to wait and decide later on. Mm. But then you've got the developmental issues of what happens if you wait. So there's been a lot of debate in the deaf community, a lot of deaf pride. So there's been, we don't call it so much disability pride, but cultures of disability. Mm. So it's about acknowledging that that this impairment's part of me, it's part of my identity, and I don't need it to be rubbed out. Thank you very much. That's on one end. On the other end, you do have people who, um, and I have people with uh, spinal cord injuries that I know that were acquired as adults that would quite happily get rid of those spinal cord injuries if there was an option. Mm. So the social model lacks that understanding about whether you were born with a disability, whether you acquired it later. It, it lacks that nuance. And so it also lacks one other key element, and that is the accountability to governments to actually do something about the power imbalance. Mm. So the social con- the social construction of disability or the social model of disability clearly points out, as Tom Shakespeare does, that it's about power. 
and it's about you only have to look at the NDIS and things to see that different governments come into power and, you know, and things change. Um, it, there's a fantastic reading by Shadok and Shadok in a book about the history of disability. And and I get students horribly um, lumpy chapter, but if you if you skim read the whole thing, you come to I say to students in class, what did you get out of that? And they said that every time the king loses his head, the the laws around the poor laws or the laws around supporting the vulnerable, including people with a disability, change. I said, Well, what is the difference with to, to today in politics? And they say, Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Every time the government changes, there's a change, which is why the NDIS came in in an attempt to stop that. We, we, we should probably say for our international listeners that the <laughs> NDIS is a National Disability Insurance Scheme and yeah. that it's a fascinating moment in Australia for this discussion because mm. we're having some of the biggest changes we've had in this space in a long time and the NDIS was brought in which much, with much fanfare and optimism and maybe some of its limitations are now being identified and this is very debate and these social theories are relevant to how we progress and improve and what we do next, I'd suggest. Absolutely. And it's a little bit, you know, sorry to bring in politics, but it's a bit, little bit like the referendum about the voice. You know, people with a disability were subject to that same up and down of governments chopping and changing. The NDIS mm. was brought in to try and eliminate that a little bit and have mm. a constant. Mm. There were also state previously state and federal funding agreements for different things. And it was very, very, very clunky. Mm. But the problem with the NDIS is facing, and it comes out a lot in the media at the moment with reviews, is the social model has limitations. Mm. And the NDIS is actually really framed around the social model. So the thing that I think we could expand on more in this discussion is around the human rights model. Where does that come into this? Mm, mm. And, and I really like the intersection between the two. I find it's very difficult to separate one from the other. Um, but the human rights model, what's different about it is it acknowledges the impact of impairment in the lives of people with a disability. So it doesn't try to rub it out or eliminate it or live in that utopia that you talk mm. about earlier in the podcast. Mm. It's saying it does exist and we can make all of the utopic architectural and attitudinal changes, but we're still going to have people fall through the gaps. Mm. So we need to acknowledge that. It recognises impairment as a natural aspect of human diversity. And this is one thing I, I think we can expand upon is that in my career, a lot of the time people go, oh, disability, I'm surprised, gee, why are you surprised 20% of the Australian population yeah. mm. at any particular time live with disability? And that has been the, the case for a very, very, very long time. Mm. Why is it you're surprised? We should expect diversity. Yeah. So I've actually gone in a way away from teaching disability to teaching diversity for that reason. Mm. Um, so, and also for a lot of people who are vulnerable for various reasons, there's often an intersectionality between disability Mm. and homelessness or disability and poverty. So for me as a researcher, moving a bit into that space has been really helpful. Mm. The other thing is that um, the human rights model establishes the rights of people with a disability to live independently and be included and acknowledges the goal of enabling people to live independently and be included in the community is far less simple than just mainstreaming mm, everything. Yeah. Um, and and when we talk later about social role valorisation, I'll explain another social theory that has sort of built upon that wounding process, that it's not just a matter of 
it's almost like a trauma-based response. If people have had years and years of trauma, simply taking away the barriers may not be enough mm. to create an inclusive, equal opportunity. And that comes down to the the one thing about the social model I would expand on, and that is it's not just about treating people equally. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so by treating people equally, you are in some ways n- not recognising that impairment and many more people will fall through the gap. Mm. So... It sounds like your engagement with the social model of disability is uh, still very much one of acknowledging the importance of it and the key takeaways that it provided and the influence it's had. But it seems like you now draw on the social model of disability at the same time as other models of disability. You've spoken about the human rights model of disability. How do you continue to use the social model of disability with some of the weaknesses that have been outlined in this article by also combining it with other ways of understanding disability and research around disability? That's a really good question. And and for me, it stems if an example of some research I've been involved in is with Department of Environment and Water and some local councils here in South Australia looking at acquiring some all-terrain wheelchairs, some of them electrified and some of them not, Mm. in an attempt to make outdoor spaces much more accessible for people. Mm-hmm. And that's just not that's not just of benefit to the individual living with disability, but we know from research that for every one person with a disability, if they're going out into leisure, into outdoor spaces, into shopping restaurants, they usually have 2.6 other people with them. Mm. So how I actually got some traction with my colleagues at Department of Environment and Water and Yankalilla Council to start with <laughs> was to not talk about the human rights and social model actually, but we had to bring economics into it because we can easily be ignored by government when we talk about this. So the human rights model and social model came after Mm. as kind of the how to, the why should we came down to, well, I'm really glad that in the Flurio Peninsula, all the tourism outlets and accommodation providers and restaurants are making so much money, they can afford to discount 20% of the population. Mm. Now that got a slightly different response from the minister. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so um, I do still, but then, then when the question is, how do we do this? Well, that's when we really bring in the social model mm. and say, well, you know, the benefit to you of doing this is not just increased economic power, mm. but also Australia needs to report to the United Nations every four years mm. about our monitoring and evaluation of the implementation of the United Nations Convention mm. on the Rights of People mm. with a Disability, which Australia was the first country to ratify. Oh, wow. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So not only do we need to ratify it, but then we need to put our money where our mouth is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's when the rubber hits the road and government gets a little bit like, oh, what do we do now? So that's when I I come in to help them. Mm. I come in to help them with valuable information that says, you know, if you invest $3.2 million in this, <laughs> you're going to get all this economic benefit. Mm. Oh, and by the way, you can tick that, you know, box and yeah. not just tick a box, but you can report back. Mm. I'll help you with the evaluation and you can you can report back on how this makes a mm. difference to Australia's um, contribution. So we do have to play, you know, it's it, it, you do need to understand social theory really well because you need to combine that with economic theory and and you Mm. need to combine that with, you know, human rights. The human rights model, what the other thing it does really well is it makes governments accountable. Mm. So the human rights model in countries that, 
you know, ratify the UNCRPD, like Timor-Leste has just done that in recent years. And they're actually coming to UniSA soon mm. to actually learn from Australia about how do we manage the, the monitoring and evaluation and reporting on the UNCRPD because they need to have a mechanism to do that. Mm. So the human rights model and the social model really drive that. They, mm. they drive research. Mm. They, they, if we're not thinking back to our research questions about how does this assist our society to live and walk the walk, then we shouldn't be doing it. You seem to obviously be very engaged around various theories around disability. What led you to engage with the topic of disability and how did that also lead you to the theory of social role evaluation? Um, Well, I worked um, in an institution here which was – it wasn't a pleasant experience and it really changed. I, I came from leisure and recreation, so I was working in community development when I wanted some extra work and I, when I walked into this institution and saw other human beings really not living an ordinary life and not mm-hmm. living a good life, I started looking for understanding about that. Mm-hmm. And the social model gave me some. It also set me up against a lot of the people that I worked with because <laughs> they came it, it wasn't managed well. Let's just say the implementation of the social model across many countries was not handled well. But anyway, it, it is what it is. So I went to university and studied a degree that gave me a look at social models and critical disability studies. Mm-hmm. And one of the theories that came up very early was social role valorization. It's, it's a Wolf-Wolfensberger theory. It came from a, a gentleman in Scandinavia. It was originally called the principle of normalisation, but for lots of reasons you understand why that didn't go down well. Um, that sunk. Um, so he came up with the principle of social role valorisation. And really what he's saying is that people who are devalued, for whatever the reason, ex people who've been in prison, people who, you know, have been homeless or unemployed, there's this really negative social value. Nobody wants no one aspires to be in that situation. So he says to overcome that wounding, to overcome that power imbalance, we need to create opportunities for people living with disability and other disadvantaged groups to have the roles in society that are valued. Mm-hmm. And I could see this, particularly with a leisure and rec background, that if we could get people into sport and they could be seen as a tenant player or mm-hmm. a netballer or people then started saying things like, wow, if they could do that, what else can they do? I recently took um, a friend to see Restless Dance Theatre and he'd had, he's a mechanic, so he'd had absolutely no exposure to disability. He worked in a mechanics room where, you know, there's lovely girly calendars on the wall and, you know, <laughs> pizza and beers on Friday. And he came to see Restless Dance and he sat there with his mouth open for an hour and then said to me afterwards, I had no idea that people living with Down syndrome, he did use good language, that was good, Mm. um, or that people with intellectual disability could actually do that. Mm. Um, He was blown away. And I think that is the importance of theatre, art, Mm. sport. They play a really valuable role. Mm. So social role valorisation is about how can we overcome the wounding and the devaluing by creating opportunities for people living with disability to be seen by society as, wow, you know, so if we're going to set up a business for someone with a disability, a micro enterprise, we would look for a gap, Mm. you know, 
if someone wants to set up a business in the CBD of Adelaide, well, we're probably not going to pick a, a business in Weymouth Street where there are three other existing businesses. Mm. We're going to talk to people and go, what's missing in this street? Mm. Oh, well, we're missing, you know, a printing outlet or a graphic designer. Well, then we would look at mm-hmm. – because then people will go, oh, actually, we're going to use that business because it's a gap. Yeah. And in doing so, people are valued. So social role valorization fits – really well with the social model, but it adds to it. It almost adds a how-to and it it acknowledges the impairment and the uniqueness of a person and it acknowledges the the power imbalances and has some practical strategies to overcome it. Mm -hmm. So that's why I like it. But, I mean, there are lots of people that think social role valorisation. The irony is I found this beautiful article that says social role valorisation, is it too conservative? No, it's too radical. (laughs) And, And this is where the politics comes in in that and it was actually written by Wolfensberger who's since passed away but um, and the article was written in 1995 which is an interesting time but he he says it was considered too conservative by the left wing of politics and considered too radical by the right wing so there's there's another example of like when the king loses his head you know politics changes things (laughs) and and we're going back to the 1600s here Um, so you know I think that that is a really good example of mm. of what Wolfensberger would say in today's social science is, yeah, that every time there's a change of government and, and that's mm. where the social model lets us down and that's where the human rights model steps up because it really says politics aside, mm. politics aside, we've signed this, yeah. we've, we've acknowledged the UNCRPD and therefore we have a response and we have to report every four years. Yeah. And Australia does not want to go to the UN and embarrass itself. Mm. Not not necessarily always a good reason for doing what it does. But. <laughs> I've got to say, as someone who has spent a lot of time researching Australia's treatment of refugees, uh, embarrassing ourselves on a public stage is something we're, <laughs> we're quite pretty good at. That. Yeah, <laughs> and right. Ignoring international law is another skill set we have. Oh, well, look, I mean, I was Australia, so not afraid of being embarrassed. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. <laughs> Correct. Correct. But this is the one time, and, and you know what? Yeah. The, the reason why I think Australia doesn't embarrass itself, mm. that's so great. With you. I was talking today to people in Timor Leste about Gareth Evans and the signing of the the gas deal where we completely you know did yeah. over the Timorese because um, I also work with Timor Leste who just who've actually just ratified yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the convention. They want to know how how can we not make the mistakes Australia's made? But but Australia do care about it. They do, but you know one of the things well, they do the that embarrasses them less is they send people with a disability as representatives to mm. so the people who who conduct the mechanism of monitoring and evaluation here is the Australian Federation of Disability Organisations mm-hmm. and they sent Natalie Wade I think was one who's an, uh, an Adelaide lawyer from Equity Lawyers who's a woman who identifies as living with disability and she's a very, I wouldn't argue with Natalie, okay. she's a power horse and so she, so that's one of the ways that maybe if Australia sent refugees or to to represent themselves um, we might have a little bit less embarrassment but um Mm. Caroline, you've really opened our eyes to so many new facets of the thinking Mm. around disability. If our listeners want to learn more about the work you are doing and more of your thoughts around disability, where can they go? My way, I mean, you'll find stuff on my UniSA staff page and I do a lot of, I don't work 
on my own. So stemming from my PhD, I absolutely refuse to conduct research that doesn't involve people with a disability and actually people with the with the with the category of impairment or the characteristic mm. of impairment that I'm working on. So I'm working on a cycling project at the moment, cool. trying to get people with intellectual disability into cycling. Well there people with intellectual disability are a really important part of what we're doing. So we're not just making it up as we go along. We're actually talking to people. And um, the work with Department of Environment and Water um, is about running trials and inviting people with a disability to come and use this equipment and tell us mm-hmm. what should the government policy on this be? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we'd love to see these these kind of accessible all-terrain wheelchairs in every um, national park in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in South Australia. And there is a lot of work being done in that space. So, Certainly that way. There are some really good organisations and Facebook groups around around disability, but certainly my staff page, and I'm always trying to facilitate. Sometimes I don't do the research on myself. I facilitate mm-hmm. other people doing it, and I really like to work with people from other disciplines. Mm-hmm. So almost all of, like the cycling project, I'm working with Patrick Faulkner from UniSA, who's an exercise physiologist. You know, so I work, I, I'm working with Jennifer Mackay from Law, Professor Jennifer Mackay, mm-hmm. and we're looking at, the, the, the T. Marie's stuff. So I, I think it's that's one of the things about my work is I really like to collaborate with people from other disciplines. Thank you very much, Caroline, for being on our podcast. Thank you to the listeners for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank, Thank you. you so much. <laughs> the Sociology of Everything podcast is created and hosted by Eric Sue and Louis Everest. It's produced and edited by Eric Sue. To learn more about studying sociology and other exciting programs online or in person at the University of South Australia, visit unisa.edu.au where you can search for more details. The Sociology of Everything podcast is primarily produced on the lands of the Ghana people. The hosts of the podcast would like to pay their respects to elders past, present, and emerging. The opinions expressed in the Sociology of Everything podcast are that of the hosts and guest speakers. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of anyone at UniSA or the institution at large. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more about the podcast, then visit our website at sociologypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.